Oh, Father, we thank you for this meal we are about to receive for our souls. Thank you that Jesus is the bread of life, the very thing we need most, the very one who satisfies us as no one else can. Would you now give us a longing for that which Jesus can give us? Would we long to hear his word for our very lives? This morning, Father, would you push out all the distractions, all the many burdens that we carry into this room this morning? Would you help us to see Jesus as what we truly need and to find all we need in him? We pray this in his mighty name. Amen. Man who ate 100 plates of sushi banned from all-you-can-eat buffet. That is quite the headline coming out of the Washington Post. It comes out of Germany. The owner of the establishment described the incident this way. He said, this is not normal behavior for our customers. Uh, The customer in in question is not someone given to gluttony, as you might think of it. Uh, He is a triathlete with a very special diet where he eats literally during a four-hour window throughout 24 hours, just one part during the day. And as you might imagine, when you compress that many calories into a four-hour window, it takes quite a bit to satisfy that sort of hunger. In his case, that worked out to 100 plates or over 12 pounds of sushi. sushi. That's roughly the amount that seven adults would eat in a given sitting. Now, I, I doubt many of us have had that level of hunger that's difficult to satisfy. But maybe if you have teenagers in the house, you've felt like it's impossible to keep food in the refrigerator. Or as soon as you back up the, the minivan full of groceries, but just an hour later, it, they're all gone. Um, and, and even if we don't have these extreme levels of hunger, each and every one of us knows what it is to have something growling within us that needs to be satisfied. You might think of it this way. God has built a timer that goes off three times a day to remind you, you have to eat. But I wonder, maybe if God is reminding us of more than just the fact that your body needs food. John 6 is often called the bread of life discourse, where Jesus is going to reveal that he is the the bread of life. And as we study this section over the next three weeks, we're going to see that That timer that goes off three times a day, it's not just reminding you you need to eat physically. It's reminding you, you need Jesus. Built into the very body that God gave you. This morning, we're going to focus on verses 22 through 40. and Really, we're going to see three instructions for how we can find satisfaction. The sort of satisfaction that's deeper than all the other longings in this life. Satisfaction for our very souls. We'll see that in three sections, verse 22 through 27. We'll be instructed to watch out for the pursuit that will never satisfy. Second, in verses 28 through 35, we'll be told to receive the gift that will forever satisfy. And then finally, in verses 36 to 40, we'll be instructed to be amazed by the plan to eternally satisfy. And in all of this, we'll be drawn to Jesus, 
the one that satisfies our souls in the way no one else can. Let's, let's begin in verses 22 through 27. Watch out for the pursuit that will never satisfy. If you remember the last couple weeks of studying John's gospel together, this is at the peak of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He is as popular as he will ever be. At this point, he would be trending on Twitter. He would be the subject of every blog. TMZ would have its camera in his face. Jesus was known as a miracle worker and a teacher. He had just sent out his 12 on a missionary endeavor. They had had great success, so much so that the crowds start to actually become a problem. They start pressing in on Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus pulled back from the crowds. He and his disciples went across the Sea of Galilee, across the lake, and they had uh, seemed like they had found a place that would allow them to have a little time to decompress, but the crowds, it turns out, would not be put off of their pursuit. They walked around the lake. They found Jesus. They found his disciples. And that became the occasion for Jesus feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children. A miracle with a message that Jesus is the king, the Messiah, that is here to provide for his people in a way that no one else has before. Yet even the people, as they ate the bread and even as they saw and heard from Jesus, they didn't understand the message behind his miracle. If you remember at the end of that text, we saw they tried to take Jesus and make him king by force. They wanted a king all right, but not the sort of king Jesus was. But Jesus is too smart for that. He certainly will not enable sin like that. So he withdrew. He sent his disciples across the Sea of Galilee back to Capernaum. He himself went to the mountains for a time and then did another miracle with the message. He walked across the lake. We heard last week from Eric Swanson how the disciples encountered that storm and Jesus met them in the midst of their difficulty. He told them to fear not, even as he calmed the storm and brought them to their destination. Once again, a miracle with a message showing us Jesus is able to meet us in the deepest of all trials. He's the sort of king that can rescue us. Now we're on the other side of the lake once again, back in their hometown, their base of operations of Capernaum. And we're, we'll see that the, the people are not the type that are easily dissuaded. They are going to continue to pursue Jesus, thinking that they've gotten a taste of something good, and they want another bite. We're told in verse 22 that the crowd saw the disciples get in the boats, but they didn't see Jesus do that. So they couldn't find him because Jesus kind of withdrew. So they hop in some boats themselves. They go across the lake. And then we're told that they found Jesus by the shore in Capernaum. Now, if you take your Bible, flip over, over to verse 59. At the end of this bread of life discourse, we get a little detail that's helpful here. It says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So even as the crowds find Jesus by the shore, it was in a synagogue near the shore that all of this occurs. That's the setting for this. It's a formal religious gathering within the synagogue. The people have found Jesus, and they're going to show that they think Jesus has something that they want. Look at the question that they lead off with there in verse <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, 
when did you come here? Now that question, when did you come here, carries the meaning of both at what time did you arrive, but, but also why are you here? It's not something that translates perfectly into English in one phrase. They're, they're asking, Jesus, what are you doing here? How did you get here? Why are you here instead of back with us across the lake? And as is so often the case, the way Jesus responds reveals people are actually asking the wrong question. Jesus shows that the real question is not why he is here, but why they are here and what it is they are actually after. Because that's what he goes on to explain for them right there at the beginning, verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, it's not because you saw the miracle and you got the message and you knew that I am the king to follow. That's not why you came, no. It's because you got a taste of one of your appetites being filled and you want another bite. Jesus knows exactly why these people are here. They still think he is the king that will overthrow the Romans and bring them to political and societal victory the way they had been longing for. But Jesus isn't that sort of king. And he's not here to satisfy that sort of desire. Look what he does. He immediately turns to warning them in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has put his seal. Jesus warns them that there is a type of pursuit, even of Jesus, that ultimately will never be satisfied because it's chasing after the wrong thing. Uh, what's the pursuit he's talking about? He's talking about a pursuit of things that perish, things that ultimately won't last. Now, that's certainly true of physical food. Right? The fact that that alarm goes off three times in your body each day tells you that the food you ate does not endure forever. It perishes. It's also true that food itself does not last forever sitting on the shelf. Right? Uh, growing up, there was an urban legend that Twinkies lasted forever. Maybe you've heard that. Twinkies last forever. People said that uh, if there was a nuclear holocaust and somehow you found someone's basement was full of Twinkies, that you could live off them forever because they never go bad. They're so full of preservatives. Turns out that's not true. Uh, if you find a Twinkie that's more than a few years old, please don't eat it. Um, maybe just don't eat Twinkies altogether. That's probably a, good, a better piece of advice. But, but we all know this, right? Food perishes. It goes bad. It, it is subject to the law of entropy like everything else in this world. So it's certainly true that the food Jesus gave, the physical food, is the wrong thing to pursue. But friends, even more than that, realize what Jesus is warning against here are the pursuits of things in this world that will not last. Think about the many things that we think will ultimately satisfy us. And yet, ultimately, they will last just a short time. Maybe it's a dream that you have about a career, something you've stayed up long into the night, just hoping against hope that one day you will get to do this thing as your job or this thing that you've always wanted to do, as if doing that thing will ultimately satisfy your soul. But, but friend, 
What happens when you actually achieve your dream? What happens if that dream doesn't satisfy you? What do you do then? Or or what about the way that sometimes people pursue safety and peace of mind? As if avoiding all pain and having enough insurance against all the calamities of life would somehow satisfy your soul. But friend, avoiding pain ultimately can never bring you lasting joy. At best, it can insulate you from a few of the things in this life, but there's no such thing as ultimate security. One day, each and every one of us will die, whether in a tragic, sudden way or in a slow, drawn-out sort of way. What about the way people even pursue matters of health in their body? Uh, Again, right now, I feel like it would be pretty nice to be a little healthier. My voice is cracking even as I'm preaching. And yet, friend, as much as you exercise, as careful as you are about what you eat, as much as you might try and fight off the aging process, no one has ever beaten Father Time. We are all here like a vapor. One day we are gone. Jesus' warning here is against any pursuit in this life, assuming that pursuit will somehow bring lasting satisfaction. He calls it food that perishes. Friend, we were not made to be satisfied by the things in this world. As wonderful as they are, as much as we might enjoy them for a season, they are just for a season. One day they will pass. If we don't find a deeper, more lasting satisfaction somewhere else, it's a very bleak outlook for the future for all of us. So what's the alternative? That's what he shows us the second half of that verse. Not for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. We need food that won't perish. We need food that Jesus gives us. That leads to the very next question. How do you get that food? Which is what we see in verses 28 through 35. Our second point. Not just watch out for the pursuit that will never satisfy, but secondly, receive the gift that will forever satisfy. Notice in verse 28, the people start with a question of Jesus that reveals yet another assumption. They they said there, verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do be I'm sorry what must we do to be doing the works of God Underneath that question is an assumption that is as valid today as it was 2000 years ago still as live in the hearts and minds of people it is the assumption that your spirituality is based on what you do Your spirituality is based on what you do what you do so many of us operate as if our actions, our work, defines our spiritual life. You can see this teased out in a rather shocking news story this last week. There's a pastor in Canada, a part of the largest denomination, who was under threat of having a church court to remove her from their denomination because it turns out that this pastor is an open atheist. You might ask, why would an atheist want to be a pastor? And the answer is because doing some sort of religious activity, somehow being connected to things that are old, things that seem to have a weight to them, it feels like it is spiritual. 
people, even if they don't believe the things that they are saying are true necessarily, if they don't believe that the faith passed down in the Bible is itself something they actually have to hold on to, they're still attracted to doing things in the hope of achieving some level of spirituality. Maybe you've heard someone say, I'm spiritual but not religious. The idea is that I enjoy some sort of expression of my spiritual side, of some sort of connection with the divine through prayer or, or meditation or some other sort of religious practice. We live in a day when most people assume what you do defines your spirituality. <clears throat> that was the case back then also. They assumed, Jesus, whatever it is that we need to do in order to do this work for the right sort of food, well, we can just go ahead and do it. The assumption is, lay it on us, Jesus. Give us our punch list. We will do the work to get the sort of food we need. And look at the way Jesus responds, verse 29. <clears throat> Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. What is it that Jesus says you need to do to receive this lasting satisfaction? To receive is to believe. One of the most fundamental truths about Christianity, our efforts, our actions, yes, even our work, can never produce the spiritual life within us that we so desperately need. If you're here this morning, you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, please hear. This is one of the most common misunderstandings people have about Christianity. They, they assume it is a system of thought, a religion, that has a bunch of rules that you follow. And if you follow those rules well enough, then we must, that must mean you're in with God. And if you don't follow those rules well enough, that must mean you're out with God. And yet what Christianity is at its most basic is the exact opposite of that. It's not based on our actions, as if our actions could ever produce the sort of life within us that we need. No, the Bible tells us the exact opposite. That we are spiritually dead and unable to generate spiritual life for ourselves. We are so far from God that we could never bring ourselves back into right relationship with him. Instead, God had to do what we couldn't. And the way we receive that gift from God of spiritual life, forgiveness of sins, and being brought back into right relationship in him is merely by believing. It's the miracle that we would believe Jesus is who he says he is. And he did what he says he did. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, the re reason you are a Christian is because of what we call the doctrine of sola fide, salvation by faith alone. Remember, it's not about how many times you did your quiet time this week or how many people you talked to about Jesus. The reason you have spiritual life is because you have believed, and that means you have received life from Jesus. Now, these people clearly don't fully understand what Jesus is saying. You can see that in verse 30. They said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They say, okay, Jesus, we, we remember back to another person we were supposed to believe, Moses. Moses was this mighty prophet. Moses was God's representative. 
And Moses gave us a miracle, manna, that bread from heaven, that provision God would give again and again so that our, the people would miraculously have full stomachs as a reminder that God really was speaking through Moses. So they said, Jesus, if you are claiming that we have to believe you, give us a sign like Moses. Now, Jesus is going to go on to correct the fact that Moses himself didn't give them manna. That's what he does in those next couple of verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus corrects that misunderstanding. Moses was just a channel. He was just an ambassador. He was just a mediator. As amazing as Moses was, ultimately Moses didn't give you that bread. And yet, friend, realize the irony of what they're asking at this moment. They are asking Jesus to provide for them miraculous bread. And what did they just get done seeing Jesus do? The very people that had full stomachs that drew them here are asking him for another round of bread, as if Jesus needed to prove himself as a miracle worker. Even more ironic than that, though, they are asking for a sign of bread when the very thing bread itself is about is standing right there in front of him, and they have no appetite for him. Do you see the danger that signs and miracles can pose here, friends? It's quite possible to see a miracle and miss the message behind it and totally miss out on the thing that you were intended to draw in the first place, that Jesus is really what you need. Jesus tells them that the manna that the Israelites received before was from God, and that God is providing now in an even greater way by sending the bread from heaven to provide for the entire world. This is Jesus himself. They have one more comment for Jesus. They said to him in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. And this brings us to the crux of the bread of life discourse. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This whole discourse is really centered around this statement of Jesus. It is the first of one of seven statements that are sometimes called the I am statements in John. Last week we saw one that was arguably another of these I am statements, but there are seven that are unambiguously Jesus applying to himself a name fit only for God himself. Here he says, I am the bread of life. The way that is written in the Greek, the formulation ego eimi, would have been unmistakable to a good Jew in Jesus' day. Now, ego me or I am, could be used in a variety of contexts, just in, in normal speech, to say, I am doing this, I am doing that, that sort of thing. And yet, there was a specific usage for I am, tracing back to what's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that any Jew in Jesus' day would have immediately understood. You see, most Jews back in Jesus' day, they may have uh, some knowledge of Hebrew, and yet their Bible would have been the, uh, in the language that was more commonly used in that day. That would be Koine Greek or Common Greek. 
And there was a translation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint that we have copies of even today that most Jews in that day would have said is their Bible. That would be the thing that they would memorize and they would immediately know when you started quoting from it. Now in the Septuagint, that ego eimi, that specific formulations used back in Exodus 3, when God reveals himself to Moses and says, who shall, uh, who shall I say is sent, is, has sent me? And he says, I am who I am, that ego eimi there. But if you were to make that case to, say, a sharp Jehovah's Witness, they might say, well, actually, that doesn't prove your case. Uh, you can find other places where ego eimi means other things, even within the Septuagint. That, that's an inappropriate way to try and draw your lines to Jesus as divine. So I just want to point you to one other line of evidence really, that's really important for this is in Isaiah. So if you have your Bible, flip back to Isaiah 41. It'll be up on the slide, Isaiah 41. And this same formulation, ego eimi, is used repeatedly in Isaiah. And the reason why this is so important is because Isaiah specifically is showing the qualifications of Israel's God as the true God over against all the kings and idols of this world. So Isaiah 41, you'll see one example of this. Isaiah 41, 2 through 4, says, Who stirred up one from the east? Whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. So this is a strong emphasis on God's sovereignty even over kings and nations. Verse 3, he pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? That is a unique characteristic of God, being able to call what is going to happen before it happens with a purpose. And here's the important part. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Again and again in Isaiah, this formulation, I am he, will be used to show the fact that God, Yahweh, is the true God over against all the false gods of this world. Jesus and John dares to apply this very designation on himself. Friend, if you struggle with whether the fact that Jesus is very God himself, the I, I, the I am statements are ironclad proof of what Jesus thought of himself, that he is the eternal son, God of God, light of light here in human flesh. Now, this statement is more than just a, a claim of divinity, though. It's also clarifying what it is Jesus is here to do. He is the answer for why God gave us that alarm that goes off three times a day. He is the very reason for the hunger pangs that every human that has ever existed feels again and again. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one that satisfies in a way that no one else possibly could. Jesus here applies to himself the manna in the wilderness. And yes, every meal every one of us ever has. Remember, bread was the most basic staple food of the ancient world. The fact that we continue living is because we 
derive our life from the death of something else. Whether that's a plant or an animal, we must eat to live. And Jesus here says he is the thing we must feed on. Look at the promise here. Whoever eats, whoever, uh, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Those two verbs tell us how it is that we receive this from Jesus. Coming to him, believing in him. These are things we receive by faith. Friends, we need to remember that we don't just need a little spiritual instruction or help. We need life from outside ourselves or we will be dead spiritually. That's what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus is saying that you will find no one else capable of providing you with that spiritual life. That you must come to Jesus, you must receive it from him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you can leave with a deep satisfaction within you that you never knew was possible. You can put your trust in Jesus. You can have this faith. If you'll just turn from what you're trusting in right now, repent of your sins before God, and believe that Jesus is God's provision for you, that he paid for your sins, that he holds your future in his hand, and that he has truly made a way for you to forever have a relationship with God. You can do that this morning. If you don't know how to do that, come see me after the service. I would love to talk with you about how you yourself can receive Jesus and the satisfaction he brings. For all of us who are believers, let's realize that even as we have had this satisfaction, as we have believed in Jesus, it's very easy to live as if we have not received it, as if our satisfaction is in fact something else. Uh, Parents, this week, when your kids have looked at your face, Do they see the face of a parent that has everything they need in Jesus? Or do they see a parent who's stressed out and tired and really just wants a day away from their kids? Or or maybe you're here this morning and you're single. Even as you have a desire, possibly if you have a desire to get married, friend, are you pursuing the good thing of marriage as if you are already satisfied It was your deepest longing that Jesus is really all you need. And whether you get married or not, that's for him to decide. Or or, or what about how we think about our finances? Are we using our money in such a way that shows that our satisfaction is not in our bank account or the things it can buy? It's actually in Jesus. And we're already secure regardless of what number is showing up in our checking account. Jesus is what we need. Jesus satisfies us at a level no one else can. And friends, that is good news. It should give us joy no matter what's going on in our lives. It's the most incredible gift we could ever receive. And yet, friend, there's even more to it. There's one more instruction that is counterintuitive. Because as important as this satisfaction is to to not pursue the wrong thing that can never bring it and to actually receive it from Jesus, we need to also be amazed at something else. That this satisfaction is actually not about us. This is our third point. Be amazed by the plan to eternally satisfy in verses 36 through 40. Very often as we talk about what Jesus came to do, 
because there are benefits directly to us and the people we talk to, we, we focus on our own need and how Jesus meets those needs. And yet, friend, there is another reason that Jesus came. There's a, another layer to his mission that is even more basic. Jesus came not just for the satisfaction of our souls. Jesus came for the satisfaction of God himself. Verses 36 through 40, in 36 through 40, Jesus takes the lens and pulls back so we can see from a heaven's point of view And we see that this whole enterprise, this whole mission is really about God's will being accomplished. Look with me in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Jesus starts off this section by saying, what I'm about to tell you is as a result of the fact that I've told you all these things and you will not believe. This is an explanation for why they are not receiving Jesus. And here it is. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What's the explanation for why they will reject Jesus? Well, it is the will of the Father. Jesus uses it four times in verses 38 through 40. He came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. This is the will of him who sent me. Then in verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. The whole point screams, this is about what God wants. God wants Jesus to save sinners in this way. God wants Jesus to satisfy us in this way. There is something that is <clears throat> does not find its origin in us. It finds its origin in what pleases God. Jesus tells us within these verses that God is so committed to accomplishing his will that he is actually the one that draws, enables, sends people to Jesus who opens his heart to them. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, that's a difficult phrase on its own. People have struggled with what he means there. I believe it's teaching what theologians sometimes call irresistible grace. While it's true that there are many times that our rebellious hearts resist God, there is a type of drawing, a type of enabling that even a rebel sinner cannot and will not refuse. It is the call, the sovereign call of the Father for a heart to be open to Jesus. In, in, in case you struggle with what he means by it, he balances, out, balances that verse out with another verse, down in verse 44, from our passage from next week. Look at with me briefly there. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, if you put those two statements together, Jesus says that, all that the Father gives me come to me. That is, if the Father gives someone to Jesus, they will effectively come to Jesus. It will happen. And then on the flip side, there's no one that can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them or or brings them to Jesus. You see, friends, this removes any other category for people that become Christians. Anyone that comes to Jesus is because the Father drew him. 
Are there anyone, is there anyone that the Father draws that doesn't come to Jesus? No. This puts salvation completely in God the Father's hands. Now, I know there has been <clears throat> much disputing about matters related to God's sovereignty and salvation in churches. I am not here to, to browbeat you about that debate. And yet, friends, these verses are in the Bible for a reason. We want to be whole Bible Christians. And so even on the surface of it, it may be hard to wrap our heads around, or it may seem to lead to implications that are uncomfortable. Friends, we need to trust that if we understand all of Scripture, that we will not be led astray. It might be helpful for me to remember that the whole point of John's gospel is not to remove our responsibility to respond to Jesus. This whole book was written so people might believe that Jesus is the Christ and find eternal life. So it's equally true that God chooses those who would be saved, that Jesus saves them perfectly, and that the Spirit makes sure that that is applied to their souls. It's equally true of that, and it's also equally true that sinners are responsible for how they respond to Jesus. On a Sunday where there, is, there are headlines of people that have been abused, it simply must be said that this is not some sort of divine abuse of the heart. God knows how to operate at the level of desire. He knows how to open a heart so that we truly want Christ. And yet, it's truly his will to save the people he does. Now, friends, if we were to take this doctrine and arrive at a conclusion that our own evangelism does not matter, our own response to the gospel does not matter, we have clearly fallen outside the bounds of what the Bible teaches. Our job is not to know the identity of those that the Father draws or, or those that Jesus will save. Our job is to hold out the gospel and call people to repent and believe. And anyone who does that, we have full confidence. They will be with Jesus forever. They have eternal life. <clears throat> because that's the second half of the, those verses. The reason Jesus gives them is to show the ground for assurance. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will, look with me in verse 37, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Or in verse 44, I will raise them up in the last day. Friend, if you love the doctrine of the security of believers, if you love the fact that you can sing that he will hold me fast, it's because your salvation doesn't rest on anything you've done. Whether that's your work or, yes, even your will. It rests on what God has done. Both his action to will in eternity past and his action to send the Son to come and die on the cross for sinners. And, yes, even the action of the Spirit working in your life so that you would believe in Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, this should not squash our evangelistic impulse and quite the opposite it should give us incredible confidence that when we share the gospel that God will be faithful to his promises to save sinners see we ultimately don't have to resort to any sort of manipulation or or push to end the sale we can just love people and tell them about Jesus knowing that God is the one who opens the heart this also means for those of you that are walking with the reality of prodigals in your life, 
When you pray for your wayward child to come to Christ, that is not a fruitless exercise. You are praying to the God that holds the very will of who will be drawn to Christ. You're praying to the right person. Your prayer is not in vain. There's a lot of mystery here. And I found it really helpful the way that one of the greatest evangelists that ever lived, C.H. Spurgeon, how he told someone to respond and they were struggling with what to do with this reality. He said this, If all that the Father giveth to Christ shall come to him, then some shall come, and why should you not be among them? One says, suppose I'm not one of the elect, but suppose you are. Or better yet, leave off supposing altogether and go to Christ and see. See, friends, our response to this truth and other places in Scripture that teach it should not be that we should feel we have no responsibility to come to Christ or we should be shy about sharing the gospel. Far from it. We should rejoice all the more that anyone comes to Christ. And when we see it happen, we should give God all the glory because he saved a sinner and this was his will from eternity past. In a moment, we are going to come to the table. And as we've just heard, Jesus is really the one that satisfies our souls in the deepest possible way. And God gave us the table, the coming to the Lord's table, as a built-in reminder, much like that alarm that goes off three times a day. Well, communion is an alarm built into the life of our church to remind us that Jesus is our source of life. Now, some have wondered whether John 6 is about communion. Next week, we'll deal with that, that uh, in depth. As Jesus says the phrase, my Body is real food and my blood is real drink. But for now, it suffice to say this. John 6 is not about communion. But communion is about the same thing that John 6 is about. Because they're both about Jesus. And how Jesus provides that which we so desperately need. So as we come to the table, the Lord has so kindly woven into our lives of our, of our own bodies, as well as the life of our, the body of our church, this reminder that we need Jesus. Would you pray with me as we prepare ourselves?